Welcome to Building LA, a podcast about the buildings and projects shaping the future of Los Angeles, hosted by me, Sam Pepper. I'm a licensed architect, developer, and project manager specializing in large, complex projects. And as you can probably tell, I'm not a lifelong Angelino. Each episode features conversations with the industry leaders driving those projects forward. We discuss what inspires them, reveal the untold stories behind these impactful projects, and talk candidly about the challenges and opportunities facing the design, architecture, and real estate industry in Los Angeles. Please subscribe to Building LA on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. And if you have a few seconds, please rate the show. We really appreciate it, and we'd love to hear from you. Now, on to the episode. In 2017, ahead of the project's completion, then Culver City Mayor Jeff Cooper said, when complete, the Culver Steps will be the crowning achievement of our downtown. Looking back on the four years since it opened in 2019, and it's actually pretty hard to argue against that statement. We all know that downtown Culver City has been one of the most successful retail, restaurant, and office development markets in LA over the last few years. This is driven by Metro's completion of the Expo Line in 2016, the influx of major media and entertainment companies such as Amazon Studios, Apple, HBO, and WarnerMedia. It's also where we've seen some of the best commercial developments offering public space, the platform, Ivy Station, and of course, the Culver Steps. Put simply, while other areas of LA are seeing a mass exodus of office tenants, Culver is thriving, and the Culver Steps are at the heart of this growth. My guest today is Patricia Ree, fellow of the AIA, a certified design build professional, and a partner at EYRC Architects. They led the design of the Culver Steps on behalf of a public-private partnership between Culver City and Combined Properties, who were later replaced by Hackman Capital. In this episode, we talk about the history of the site, how EYRC carefully integrates their projects into the existing neighborhoods, and our hopes for the future of Culver City. We also talk about how Los Angeles should prioritize activated public space, the transition from Boston to LA, and how she got to know the city through the lens of the one and only Jonathan Gold. Hi, Patty. Welcome to Building LA. Hi, Sam. Before we talk in detail about the project called Steps, I would imagine that there's very few people who don't know this site and this building. But if you wouldn't mind, if you could take us to this area, if I'm a pedestrian walking around the site, what am I experiencing? So it's at the corner. It's actually this triangular site. And on the western side, you have the Culver Hotel, which is a very historic building, apparently where the munchkins were partying hard oh, wow. during the filming <laughs> of The Wizard of Oz. And then on the southern side, you have the Gone with the Wind house. That is kind of the front part of the Culver Studios, also another historic, iconic building within Culver City. And then on the east side, you now have uh, one of the public parking structures that has a Trader Joe's in it. And then just kind of all around on the streets, you have a lot of restaurants, a lot of retail, mostly food places, which is something Culver City is pretty well known for. I would, I would agree. When I was first moved to LA four years ago, that was one of the first stretches I went to because of the level of activity there. 
before EYRC got involved and before the, the project started construction, can you tell us a little bit about what was on the site previously? So it was pretty much a no man's land. It's where we would get our Christmas trees because they would have uh, the temporary Christmas tree lot there. Wow. But they also had like random tents set up for conferences that happened over a weekend or like antique car shows that would take over the surrounding streets in that triangular lot. They, I think they even had like one of those temporary ice rinks there over the holidays. But it was always this no man's land. They were looking, it didn't have any construction going on. And I believe this is for decades because I believe the city did have different proposals, different RFPs and proposals out for it. Designs would be submitted, but then for whatever reason, they wouldn't go forward. So it's always known this was underutilized and there was a desire to call the city to, to get this going. How did EYRC get involved in the project in the first place? So it was around 2011. There was a developer-led competition that was put out by the city for that property. And it was, I think, several developers submitted combined properties, which was Ron Haft. They reached out to us and we joined forces with them and put in a proposal for the competition. I think it was a very interesting process because I believe they had flexibility on exactly how much retail or how much office that you were providing. That We needed to provide a certain amount of parking for the city because it was city land. But in terms of the what we proposed for the competition, we really wanted to maximize all the pedestrian traffic that happens in that area. Because in LA, as you know, you don't find that many neighborhoods where there's a lot of pedestrian flows. And so it was like, okay, how do we really exploit that, what you've got going here, and to even make that better? And so our scheme was really kind of an outward-facing scheme with um, no kind of back portion of the building, no back of house of the building, because we, we thought that it was important to really activate that perimeter to really energize all the pedestrian traffic. The other schemes, they all seem to be either courtyard schemes or paseo schemes, which were more inward focused. Schemes from other architects? From the other right. developer teams. Developer teams, okay. And so um, I was kind of secretly pleased because yeah. I was like, okay, ours is really different. Yeah. And I think it made sense for, for sure. that site. When you were going through the design process with combined properties, were there quite a lot of massing iterations that you were looking at? And how was that partnership between EYRC and, and combined properties? So we did look at the massing. I mean, I think what was important was we're kind of wedged between all this kind of pedestrian commercial activity, but then you also have these very historic, meaningful icons to the city that people love and yeah. hold dear to their hearts. And so it was like, how do we make the massing work with this? but also recognizing this is a really important heart of the downtown because you also have Main Street, which is on one side of the property. And that's where they have like their farmer's market, their cute little stores. And so the idea was that we would have the massing kind of be taller on the Trader Joe's slash parking side, that's the Eastern side, and that it would step down as you got towards the Culver Hotel. So really kind of paying homage to that building also creating an area where you could have viewing of the Culver Studios building. I arrived in your office 20 minutes ago, and thank you for having me, by the way. <laughs> and I was talking to one of your colleagues about the, the steps, and he's like, oh, yeah, just out of the blue, he's like, oh, you know, I, I love that project. It's one of my favorites that we've done. 
I go there every weekend with my kids and we have ice cream and we sit on the steps. And that is a very rare experience in Los Angeles yeah. still. There aren't a lot of civic spaces that are urban. There are great outdoor spaces. There's Griffith Park, there's the beaches, obviously, but civic spaces where you can be in an urban environment, watch people kind of to go about their day, there are not many. And so I think this project stands out. And it was really interesting that he mentioned that he's utilizing, and I think the way it was probably designed. Yeah. And I must say that when I look at that project, kind of like in the midst of other projects I've worked on or, or see in the city, it's uh, the most civic project that I've worked on, in, even though it was a developer-led project. You know, yeah. it's a developer project. And it just goes to show that you can never tell. Because I've worked on courthouses and libraries, and while those two are very public, it's just like in a different way, a different manner. If you look at the leasing metrics and everything, I mean, this building is doing incredibly well. So for developers all around the city, I mean, it is actually quite a good template for how to create value because tenants want to be in a space that people are coming to organically anyway. Yes, yes. And so, and they are here. So it makes, it, it creates a lot of value and is a great template for other projects. Yeah, I mean, I would love if all of our projects had some space <laughs> like this. I think the city would be a much better place, but yeah. For those folks who aren't super familiar with the firm, can you just describe a little, about, a little bit about the company? So we're a 45-ish person firm. We have two offices. Our mothership is here in Culver City. We also have a, an office up in San Francisco in the Dogpatch neighborhood. In terms of our portfolio, we like to say we do everything from custom house to courthouse to warehouse to house, house of parliament. So basically very broad in reach, but we definitely have expertise, deep expertise in certain um, arenas. And I think that's what I really do cherish about the uh, working at, at EYRC is that there's always, there's no um, fear of working on a new project type because we know we can learn so much from whatever project type we work on. And then we can draw from the different things that we've learned on other projects to inform that. And it just becomes very a rich melding of ideas and uh, thinking that I think enrich in each project. So I would agree that I think EYRC's portfolio of projects spans an enormous range of typologies. There is a, while not an obvious, but there is a, I think an underlying aesthetic thread that maybe goes through all of them. Clients that approach you, what do you think they're looking for when they come to EYRC? I think it varies. It's it's like my answer for many things. It's case by case. Yeah. It's all, there's no one blanket answer. I think they appreciate our design sensibility. That's on one hand, but also our design thinking that we can apply to whatever the problem is. And I think that is really a quality that over the years, and when I look at the staff and how we work, that is something that we pride ourselves on our ability to to be good problem solvers balanced with a good design sensibility. Going back to the project, the steps, I would imagine it's such a complex project. What were some of the challenges that you had during the design process? Well, that project was, I mean, I don't know if this is good or bad or just kind of 
what it was, it had starts and stops. Okay. Because we won the competition and then almost like immediately we had, and we we're like, yay. And then it's like California Redevelopment Agency shut down. So, right. so it just, we didn't do anything for yeah. a year or two. And then it started up again. And then we went through the design and, you know, that took some time. And then it changed hands in terms of the developer from one, from a combined Tackman. So, mm-hmm. so it wasn't a completely linear process, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because it gave us opportunities to think about stuff mm-hmm. and think more deeply. And even we had the opportunity to make tweaks and changes. Michael Hackman, when he bought the property from Combined, he asked us that. He said, okay, this has been a long process since you started this back in 2011. Is there anything you, in terms of design, hmm. keeping in mind that we were in the permit process, mm-hmm. like is there anything you would tweak or change hmm. that may you may have brought up before and it didn't happen. And so we thought about it. The project used to actually have different different materiality in terms of like right now everything's uh, monochrome of black. Yeah. Before there was a brick that kind of matched the color of the Culver Hotel mm. brick. And we thought about it and we thought that it would be kind of a nice thing to make it more of a monochrome. Hmm. And that what you read instead much more clearly is the different materiality where, for example, like the bricks, we gave it more patterning and popping out. So there's more like tactility to it. Mm-hmm. And the ins and outs of the window mullions, having like depth of the fins, things like that just allowed the massing to read more, the massing and the detailing. So I thought that was kind of... And you're saying those changes, which I think are very key to the look and feel of the building and the way it's perceived now, those happened midway through the process. It was really actually, I think we were already in permitting because I remember like we couldn't make big, big changes that would affect the schedule or cost, yeah. When you walk around the building, the massing is quite masterful in the way that it feels at at some points to be separate buildings. It feels like almost separate projects that are kind of interrelated. Was that an initial design approach that the team really felt was key to the success and then led to the progression after that. Yeah, so I'll show you this. I know people can't see it, we, but that we, was a sk- sketch We will put it on the, on the website. <laughs> so that was a sketch that was early on. I believe that was part of the competition submittal. So the massing, if you blur your eyes, it looks, aside from the colors, it's pretty much the same massing. Yeah. Step The grand steps coming up to an upper level and then the taller massing on the far side and then the restaurant massing and the retail kind of hmm. anchoring the other side of that courtyard. And I think that massing actually came early on, like when we walked the site, because we're right next to Town Hall Plaza, mm-hmm. is where the movie theater is. Yeah. I think there's like a Chipotle or something. And it was this idea of taking that civic public walk and having it come up come to the up. second level. And there really is no like, well, before the platform, there wasn't really any up, upper level retail or restaurants in Culver City that I knew of. So, well, I think well, upper level retail is typically at a kind of no no. Yeah. For for developers, and I think people are scared of it. But the only way to do it successfully is if you do a huge gesture like this and have the public square actually literally come up. And people do like to be sitting in elevated point. To be able to look down, to look down. and check out what's going on in Absolutely. the plaza, and it's also 
has the potential to be very active because you always have tons of people here with people on mm-hmm. the steps. And hopefully the restaurant goes through on the level too. Oh, that's right. Well, but we planned a whole, we called it like the tree bar that happens on the upper level. Mm-hmm. We, I call these the cabanas where you sit underneath the canopy and can look out onto the Culver Studios. I mean, they do group yoga out here. It's amazing. I've seen photos. It's I haven't done it personally, but it looks well, amazing. Well, I've, I've seen a whole number of activities, but the main thing for me is that while you drive around LA at a lot of times of day and night and you see very few pedestrians, yeah. there is always a gathering of people here constantly, consistently at any time of day. And I think that's really a, a testament to the success of the building. And going back to the original point is why businesses want to be based there and want to be associated with the project. Yeah. I mean, it's so cool that Combined came to us, mm-hmm. not having worked with them before. They were looking for a Culver City architect. Yeah. On the flip side, to be able to work on a project in your own neighborhood is amazing. Yeah. I'm all about the local, you can ask my colleagues. Like, I'm all about the local, going deep on the local stuff, like getting to know the people, the neighborhoods, the community, the culture. Because to me, it's, it's just so much that gives back to you. Yeah. And so... To be able to work on this project is really a dream because I can I take my kids to the yeah. Salt and Straw to Sephora. No, you know, yeah. it's you know once that restaurant opens, I'm going to be going there all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, to participate in that and see the people use it is so satisfying. I think that's what I wish for all architects. You know, <laughs> that's the dream, right? Yeah. And especially these projects take so long. Take so long. And the satisfaction is so delayed. Yeah. But when it actually does happen, it's so you then that sticks with you for the rest of your life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They do like the Christmas tree lighting there. They had like Heidi Duckler dance, did yeah. a performance on this. So it sounds like they've had Christmas trees then there. Consistently, it's a business, right? <laughs> Let's try. I didn't think about that. Yes, it's true. That's good. So that's the thread that continues. Yeah. I, love, I love it. Yeah. I want to talk about the project team. Obviously, it wasn't just EYRC on the project. There were other consultants involved. It takes a village, as we all know. So who were the other consultants on the, on the project? Yep. So Bold, you know Brian Norder. <laughs> he did the lighting. Um, we had Somas for Civil, Glumac, for the um, MEP and part and parcel did the signage. Structural was Cycle Bouquet. And very important was SWA, they did the landscape. And so really the steps that the way, and I know that they spent a lot of time with Ron going over many iterations on how this is gonna look, but yeah, they were great. You've worked on more than one office development in Culver City and a mm-hmm. lot of projects in Culver. And obviously Culver is very, important, near and dear to your heart. Another project that you worked on, which is very prominent, is the Ivy Station Creative Office Building, which is leased by Warner Brothers Discovery. Mm-hmm. When you're designing office space, which is obviously going through a little bit of a challenging period right now, what do you think are the best practices for attracting top tenants to the spaces? You know, I honestly don't think of it as like best practices for design. That's usually not how I would approach it. It's more like, okay, what is the site telling me? What can I learn from the site? What do I hear from it? And what can we do to really make a project that feels integrated within its neighborhood at the right scale, the fabric, and how we can like channel, encourage like different circulation or flows in and around that, the potential building. 
So for Ivy Station and talk about projects that have a long history, yeah. I started uh, looking at that site with, what was it, Urban Partners. Oh, wow. 2002 or 2003, something like that. We had proposed something and that didn't go through. And then it was dormant for a long time. And then Low Enterprises, mm -hmm. they picked up the project. And then that team, they were working with Low at the time and they brought us in to do the office portion. Because it also has the residential component the and hotel, the hotel exactly. and now Etta's there as well. And yeah, so whole... we were just the, the office building. Right. And so interestingly, like, when I think of these shell core buildings, mm -hmm. I think of them as like vessels. They're vessels mm -hmm. on a site. And then how do you respond to all the stuff to make that materiality of the vessel, right? Mm -hmm. And so for that one, it's very interesting in that, well, first of all, the property itself is half in, in LA, half in Culver City. Mm. Um, it's on a very- That does not sound fun. <laughs> how that happens. Our new office building is going to be the same one. Yeah, I've heard anyway. that, that actually happens a lot. Yeah. <laughs> the Venice Boulevard, very busy. It was going to be the metro stop for Culver City. Right. And very few pedestrians, I would say, along Venice Boulevard. And the beauty of it is we had the whole block. So that was kind of nice to have that length of time where you catch the attention of people on the metro or people driving yeah. by in a car or people even on the freeway, you can see the project. So we have that on the north side and then you have National on the short end of our office building, which is also a very vehicle oriented street. And then we face the residential portion. They call it the Metro Park. Mm -hmm. So it's all open space, mm -hmm. greenery, pedestrian on the south side of the building. So very different conditions. And it's like, how do you make this building really respond to that? And then also solar orientation. Mm -hmm. So I feel like, I always feel like this project is like the clearest party execution of a project of mm. any that I worked on because the north side with the whole cellular structure with all the um, fins, yeah. you're familiar with yeah, the, red, familiar the red project. Yeah. So those are all basically the fins uh, reflect the... Um, late afternoon sun sure. because the whole thought was we have a pretty wide footprint. Yep. We wanted to have as much visibility as we could. When you put like a screen in front of it, you block out too much visibility. Mm -hmm. So how do you have maximum glass, but not have all the sun blasting into you? So that was the whole logic for the fins. There was a great depth to that yeah. facade, which I think is just adds to the impact of the building as you are driving along it for quite a long time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, we, when we originally conceived of it, it was where the lobby is, that was actually going to be an open air pass-through. Interesting. they decided to, to enclose I it. I can see that. Day. And I think it's better that they did it just mm -hmm. for whatever reason. But then when you go around the building on the southern side where it's all pedestrian, since it's the southern side, we also all glass because you want to maximize the visibility. But this is where we put all the roll-up doors and they kind of like checkerboard across that back facade. Mm -hmm. And we had all the walkways, which would also protect the full height glazing on that side to reduce the solar heat gain and all the walkways. So that there was the idea was that you really activate that edge. It activates what's going on in the mm -hmm. park below. Yep. And there's like that engagement. Yep. And then we also put what we call like the living room in the sky, the center of the building, the, the indoor-outdoor atrium, let's say. So okay. on the south side, I can show you a photo too. But the idea is that instead of having like an enclosed atrium, yeah. you have 
I mean, we're in Southern California. Why don't you like blow it open and have it happen outside yeah. and have all your circulation also outside? And it just activates. It activates it. And the thing I like about that project is, and I've been to a couple of the retailers that are facing the south side of that building. There's a nice, I think there's almost like a little loger area where you walk, where you're a little bit under a little bit of shade, I believe. Yeah, I think that's where, yeah. So Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you're walking in under some shaded area, which is again much needed in yeah, Southern all the California. Walkways. I'm curious with this project. I mean, we, we talked about the palette of the steps being very dark, with you really celebrating the materiality, the tactile quality of the brick versus the crisp glazing of the windows. Mm. Here, bold choice was made to have a Pink, it's on pink, a red building. <laughs> That's why I said exactly. pink. But that would have been pink. fun. Saw Barbie recently. That's probably why I said pink. <laughs> the red building. What What was the thought process behind that? I mean, it, it does. It's an incredibly memorable building, so I can see how that would be appealing. But what was the What was the thought process? So the thought was that we wanted to make a bold statement for yeah. Culver. Like you've arrived at Culver City. This yeah. is the metro stop. You know, this is marking where the metro arrives. Yeah, so it was really marking that. I think it does it really well. And it, it's not just another glass building. Exactly, yeah. exactly, which there are a lot of these days. We are talking about Culver City. Do you live in Culver City? I tried for many years. Okay. My husband, I looked all over <laughs> yeah. all the different neighborhoods, but we could not find a place. We put the offers in, but we live very close, Marvista. Well, I think a lot of people can identify with that, including <laughs> including me. <laughs> but you've been in, you've obviously, you work here. You've done a lot of projects in Culver City. That Culver City has had a resurgence over the past 20 years. What do you see, what do you hope for with this part of the city over the next 20 years? Well, I mean, Culver City is very interestingly shaped. I don't know if you've ever seen a map, but it's not just like a dense chunk of a right. part, many part. It's like stretched out yep. and it includes Fox Hills and Costco and just that long sliver along Washington. It would be great to have the same amenities that we have here in the downtown mm -hmm. area, what we consider like the heart of Culver City, let's say, to have that also with an easy access of all parts of Culver City, mm -hmm. particularly that the Fox Hills area. I think also the ability for normal people to live in Culver City, because mm -hmm. that's something you do see. It's just with all the new housing, it doesn't really seem like they're geared towards, I say normal people, but you know, like no, the people I mean, who teach here and yeah, work here yeah. or the, you know, our people on the police force or in the, the work for the fire. The people who actually or, make the city run yeah. can't, live to live, can't yeah. afford to live in the city. Patty, we're now going to switch gears and talk about you instead of the project. In looking a little bit at your background, you studied at Penn and Harvard GSD. And then if I've got my facts correct, you moved straight to LA and started working at EYRC in 2000. Take us back to that time. Why did you move to LA? Basically, we graduated, my husband Takashi and I, and Takashi is the Yanai in Berlick and I Regina Architects. We graduated in 1998. I graduated in 98, he graduated in 99. We both were working at offices in Boston we knew we weren't going to stay in Boston forever. Mm -hmm. It was a little too small for us. Yep. And, you know, thought about New York, going abroad, you know, applied to places in Europe. But the reality was, I mean, that was back when it wasn't super easy to get a job. Mm -hmm. He got a job offer from one of his places that he had interned, an employer out in uh, Malibu. And we 
we're like, you know, maybe we should go. Hmm. You know, we have loans to pay. Sure. How oh, yeah. as, as romantic as moving out to Europe sounded, it just seemed like this might be more responsible. It's not a very exciting answer. But <laughs> were, you, were you familiar with this area before or did you come here without? So LA was new to me. I had done summer internships. God, Michael Falonis? Yeah. Okay. One summer, and then Roger Sherman, okay. who I adore, because he he's like, I don't know if you do this, but like I followed in his footsteps because he was a DOE designer of the environment major at Penn, and he also went to the GSD. The whole reason that I started working at Lake Flato in San Antonio, which is a place I had never been before, was because I asked Peter Waldman, who was a legend in UV Architecture School, where I should go. And he said, have you heard about Lake Flato? And I said, no. He said, you should go work there. And so I did. Oh, that that's sweet. That's sweet. <laughs> yeah. It was good. And it was highly recommend anyone who's starting out architecture. Great place to work. Yeah, it seems like it. They do, they do awesome work. So you knew LA a little bit, but you were still new to the area. What were your first impressions of LA? Because it's very different from Boston. Yeah, it's, it, it reminded me of a big suburb. So I grew up in Maryland, okay, which is also borderline rural. B- Bethesda I, or? No, that's no. like more urban. For yeah, sure. kind of thing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this tiny little town called like Haver de Grace in Harker County, okay. way up the Chesapeake Bay. Okay. I would say it's pretty rural. Yeah, yeah that's sure. That's probably more fair assessment. Because I'm used to like the East Coast cities, like mm-hmm. Boston, Philly. I went to underground Philly, yep. New York. We visited a lot. And Baltimore, obviously, we went to high school. Right. So I was used to that kind of dem- density. And then visiting LA, which you think of like, that's one of the biggest cities in our country. And it did not feel like a city. It was just like suburb after suburb after suburb. And it's not like I was hanging out in downtown back then a right. lot. They're just, but it's not like I, I didn't like it. It was just a, a bit of a surprise. Mm-hmm. It wasn't what I expected. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to that time, what, what were you interested in? What, what kind of architecture did you want to explore? Well, you know, LA is exciting because if you're a young architect or someone just graduating, it's like there's so many options. There's yeah. so many, and I think it's still the same, but back then it's like all these young firms, people leaving big firms to start their own thing, and there are just so many of them. So you have a lot of options, a lot of choices. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually a great thing about LA for young architects. There's like, so many opportunities. And you can also work on projects like that could hypothetically get built yeah. right in your locally, you know? There is more, uh, I think, a higher probability that your project will succeed and get built here than there would be in New York, for yeah, example. exactly. And even when I was working in Boston, I worked at a firm there for two and a half years. The projects that I was, I they were never local. They were in mm. Baltimore or in Georgia or, or whatnot. But oddly enough, the first competition project I worked on in this office was back in Cambridge. Oh, really? And we won it. So, and they got built. It was the Kendall Square project. But I was oh, like, right. what yes. are the odds? You know? Of course. Yeah. It took me a long time to get used to loving LA. It definitely took me, I would say it took me like 10 years. Really? Yeah. I, I miss the- East Coast, uh, your, your identity was East Coast still. I miss the walkability of the cities yeah. there. I yeah. miss the seasons. Yeah. But now that I'm- I've been here for so long. I, yeah. I do appreciate. There's so many cool things about LA, like the ethnic neighborhoods. It's a very hard city to explain. I think it's a very hard city to visit. Whenever family members come here, I'm kind of at a loss of what to do. But living here, I think it 
grows over time and you're, you appreciate these things, little little aspects of it. So going back to Boston, you're at the GST. I think anyone who's in the architecture field has known someone who went to the GST. Mm. It's a very intense environment. Describe your experience there. Were there any professors in particular who yeah. you looked up to? I'm glad you asked that. I think intense is a good word. Very accurate. Yeah. And I think I'm going to step back a little bit and talk about my undergrad. Sure. Because that was at, it was a, called Design of the Environment. And it was like an interdisciplinary, liberal arts-oriented major at Penn. And it no longer exists, which kills me. Hmm. Because I thought it was the best major. It was like perfect for me. Because I was not at a point in my life where I knew I wanted to do architecture. Right. Like I had the choice. Do I do this major or do I go to Cornell and five years of architecture right off the bat day one. I was not, definitely not that person. That's what, that was me as well. I, I didn't, I wanted to go to UVA because it was four years and I liked the fact that I had an out. <laughs> yes. That was, that was the appeal. You I need didn't, me didn't, out. I didn't, I didn't want to get locked in age 18 into a five-year, not too young. I mean, for me, I was not ready. Yeah. The first architect I met was when I came to Penn. I had never mm. met or talked to a real architect That's interesting. before. So I didn't even know what that looked like, you know? So I loved it. It was a lot of drawing. It was a lot of art history, you know, some theory. And even the studio projects, it was more like general design versus like, we're going to build a building, you know? It was mm -hmm. more like site and urban areas or, you know, it was just more teaching you how to be a almost like a generic designer versus like an architect. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of hard to explain. Yeah. No, it's about how to think about design. How to think about and how you can approach things. Right. And they were really good at giving us a lot of different ways of exploring and expressing ourselves in terms of like drawing and media and also about how you document stuff. Like for every project, we'd have to like make a book. And I literally was like hand sewing these books. Hmm. And I look back on them and my daughter's like, what, you sewed this thing? I was like, yeah, it's kind of cool. That's cool. But I think that was, I don't know what the words, there was, was a word we used to describe it and I can't remember, but it was kind of like loosey-goosey, very like artsy and organic. We use the word organic all the time yeah. when we describe our projects. And then I go, I didn't take any time off. I went straight to GSD and it was all of a sudden, it was very rigorous. You had mm. to have a reason behind every single line you drew. Mm. And you had to back it up. Defend yourself. Defend yourself. And it was all black and white, like pencil. And this is before computers, or before we were using yeah. computers for drafting. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It was all um, like hard line. And whereas at Penn, everything was like hand-drawn and painted and charcoal and all that. But I think that kind of rigor and discipline was really a good balance for my undergrad hmm. education. And I, I'm so happy that I did both. Hmm. It was truly, I, it was like one of the high, I think it's, well, I shouldn't say that because I have children, but it was one of the high, higher points of my life. So I love my time at the GSD. And you ask about professors. I had great professors like Carol Burns, Daryl Fields, you know, Brett Steele, who's at UCLA right now, right. he was actually my first year, first semester. He was visiting and he was like the wild, the wild child then. Yeah, but even more important than the professors were the fellow students. Mm -hmm. And I think I learned absolutely hands down the most from my fellow classmates because they were in all intense people, which I loved. Yeah. Because when I was at Penn, I was like the intense one. And I yeah. didn't like being like the only intense person. Yeah. Not that I was the only one, but it was like, 
almost, I don't know, you're younger then too. Yeah. Like people are yeah. interested in different things. But like when you're in grad school, everyone's there for a reason and right. they're serious about it. And I learned so much. I was, you know, people just motivated each other. And it wasn't necessarily like cheerleading you or anything. It was just the fact that they're there, we're all there together. Mm -hmm. And the rate of learning was just like exponential. Patty, you are a founding co-chair of the AIA Los Angeles Women in Architecture Committee, which was founded in 2016. Tell us about some of the initial goals of that committee. Just a little bit about the origins. And it's very, um, the timing is really good because tomorrow is our powerful conference. Right. So, <laughs> the 10th one. So there were two, the conferences, and it was really geared towards women in architecture in L.A., and there was so much excitement and energy that came out of these conferences in the aftermath and this desire for it to not just be a once or twice a year event, but that it would be something that would be kind of carried throughout the year mm -hmm. and really keep that community going. So that's, in a nutshell, how the women in architecture. I mean, it was surprising because a city as large as L.A. to not have its own women in architecture committee was kind of surprising. Very surprising. I mean, we, did, we do have the, the AWA plus D, right. which is also a great group. But to really have one that is specifically for architects, that there was definitely a need for that. And you're a founding member. How many founding members were there? Was so it? there were four founding chairs. Founding so chairs. Myself, Tanya Van Hurley, Pooja Bhagat, and Ashley Perkins. Okay. So how did that the conversation come about where you decided this is something you wanted to pursue? So I remember we were in the conference room at MRY after one of the, after the second conference. And we were like, okay, we, we need to have some kind of planning group Mm -hmm. to make this thing not just be for powerful, but for events that would happen throughout the year. And I remember Krista Becker, she kind of pointed at me and she pointed at Tanya. <laughs> and then others kind of raised their hand and she's like, I think you guys should hmm. talk about this and get together. And then Will Wright of AIALA, mm -hmm. he yeah. um, recommended that Ashley Perkins, who had recently moved to LA, talk to us and mm -hmm. she had been part of the planning of a women in architecture group, I believe. And so the ball just kind of kept rolling and that's how hmm. we kind of came about. So we were formally turned into a committee, I believe spring of 2016. Okay. So between 2016 and and today, and it's October, 2023, for anyone who's listening way in the future, <laughs> how have you seen the group evolve? Oh, it's amazing. First of all, it's the number of attendees to the conference is, you know, it's just a great gauge of like the interest and the energy and the support. And then also the way it's organized, you have your two chair, the current chairs, two vice chairs who will come on the next year, mm -hmm. and then two past chairs to give support and advice based on past experience. Yeah. And so it's always changing. Every year, the content of the conference, it's like whatever those two chairs, they kind of it's their show. They guide it. And it really does evolve. And I love seeing what new things are brought to the table. Because, I mean, it's like life. It's There are different issues that are relevant mm. at different times. So for this will be released after the conference that's tomorrow. Mm. But for next year's conference, is it always around October? Yes, it's usually one of the, yeah. Okay. Usually so Thursday October, in October. October 2024. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone who's listening wants to get involved, they just go onto the AIA Yes, you can go to the AIA. Yeah, we do have a section in there. Okay, yep. great. Yep. What advice 
because I'm sure a lot of women in the industry are looking up to you as a leader. What advice do you have for women in the profession? Go to the Powerful Conference. Yeah. Check that okay. one off. <laughs> yeah. Go to the conference. <laughs> Sharing your stories, I think, is always a good thing. Knowing that there's no singular path that we have to take, because, you know, as women, there are def- different things that biologically come up within our lives or or not. I think the paths are many. And the more you hear about how other people went down their path, I don't know, for me, it's that's something that has given me comfort to hear about those stories. I also think asking for help if you need it is a good thing. And I don't know if that's a woman thing or not, but... And it would apply to me as well, I would say. Yeah, so, because, you know, sometimes there's just a lot going on in life, your regular life. And so knowing when to ask for help and not, not, there's no shame in that, you know. As a leader of a firm, describe a typical week, how much of your time is spent on projects versus the business of managing a firm? I would say I spend about... 20% 20% time doing like BD stuff, mm-hmm. uh, about a third on projects. Mm-hmm. It's really important that I'm always working on projects because mm-hmm. I think otherwise you will not have a happy patty. So, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then I would say the re- whatever that fraction that remains is uh, office management. Okay. So managing yeah. people, et yeah. cetera, all yeah. the stuff that goes on here. Where do you hope to take EYRC in the future? You know, I'm one of six partners mm-hmm. and one of 45-ish teammates. My vision of the future is not singular or fixed. Mm-hmm. It's really, um, I'm part of a, a group and I hope to perpetuate and participate in this thriving culture we have here. This It's a thriving business and to continue to shape in a relevant way our city. Great. And... Last two questions that I'm going to ask you. What continues to inspire you about living and working in LA? I love the multi-ethnicity of LA. I think that's what really sets apart from any city that I've been to on this earth. And I think it's those cities or those communities are constantly in flux. Mm -hmm. They're at varying degrees of being established. I appreciate that immigrant mentality, having immigrants as parents that kind of nature to really work hard, fight hard, um, not taking what you have for granted. Mm -hmm. I mentioned this earlier. I love that we are able to build locally and Mm -hmm. see projects come up out of the ground because that's one of my favorite parts of of being an architect. I think that's kind of what inspires me. I love the casualness of LA. I love that you can wear sneakers or Birkenstocks (laughs) or jeans or even shorts to work, especially at our office. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a little different on the East Coast. There's a, it's a bit more formal. Yeah, I think the Birkenstocks and, and shorts doesn't fly in New York. <laughs> no, still, I guess not. I just love that casualness. And I think that does, it does uh, infect just like people's attitudes. It just, I, I love that. Feels you know? a bit looser. Things are looser. Yeah. It's a little, little restricted, a little like the fewer rules around things. Yeah. Yeah. It does really permeate. And I think maybe, I don't know if that's increased due to pandemic. I sort of feel like it has. Mm. Things have gotten even more casual. Mm-hmm. But it's like this kind of freedom. Yeah. You know? No, that makes sense. And then my last question for you, Patty. What are your three favorite buildings or places in LA? 
My first one is my house in Mar Vista. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a, a little traditional house built in the 50s or 60s that Takashi, my favorite architect, <laughs> <laughs> and I, we renovated it several years ago. We painted it black, we re-landscaped, and we did a couple of moves on the inside. But it's, to me, it's like the perfect house. I love it. And I'm a homebody, so it's really really important to me. Yeah. And even within that house, my favorite spot is my front patio. So Mm. it's like we built this new deck. I love growing edibles, Mm. but they're all in containers because I'm kind of freaked out by bugs. Mm. So, Mm. So to me, I hang out in that garden like constantly, you know, whenever I'm stressed. Yeah. And it just brings me so much joy. So, okay. Yeah. That's a good one. A place that I like to bring visitors to is uh, Hauser & Worth in the Arts District. Mm-hmm. Okay. I love that the chickens run around in that community garden area. And it has its own oh, little right. yes. edible planters and stuff. And then if you want to see the art, there's the art. <laughs> and they have a fun bookstore and there's Manuela's. There's just a lot of kind of cool adjacent activity that's not all the same type of activity going on there that I really, I love that. Yeah, juxtaposition of different types of uses and surprises. I mean, anything with chickens running around is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, that that is a good thing, I agree. (laughs) And then the last one isn't a house, but it's really, it's a book. It's um, Jonathan Gold's Counterintelligence. Mm. And it's really an ode to Jonathan because I really loved the guy. And uh, when I first moved to LA, my friend Whitney, she was a classmate at GSC, she works at the office. Yeah. She gave me, gifted me that book. And um, I think most of you all, the listeners probably know, are yeah. familiar with counterintelligence. Yeah. But for those who aren't, it's uh, it's like a guidebook to restaurants in LA. Mm-hmm. Very, very the, well written. Did he? Is this the book where he, Talked about going all the way down Pico Boulevard. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And yep. he wanted his goal was to try every restaurant. Every restaurant. Yeah. And um, as a newcomer to LA, it brought me and Takashi because we would just take the book and then go shoot out in, in our cars to these yeah disparate parts of LA to find this taco place or this seafood joint or this Chinese restaurant, and it really took us to these neighborhoods that we would not normally have gone to. Right. And we just followed wherever he took us. But I think that was like the best introduction to LA that I could have ever asked for mm-hmm. and so memorable. And so it's it exemplifies what I love most about LA. And even to this day, now I am um, not only, I, I mean, I'm a foodie. Do I love going to the little hole-in-the-wall places, but finding the hole-in-the-wall markets mm-hmm. where uh, people buy their groceries, whether it's like the Middle Eastern store or the Korean K-Town market mm. or something in Monterey Park. So, yeah. I, I, I totally agree. I think sometimes the best way to see a city is to taste yeah. it. Well, Patty, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, please consider subscribing to Building LA on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. As a bonus, if you have a couple of minutes, please consider rating the podcast and writing us a brief review. We'd really appreciate it. And of course, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to email me at sam at buildinglapodcast.com. Hope you tune in again soon.